Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You don't try and think for the worst, really, because you're in a small town, you're in a small newspaper, you're covering a story, you know, um, Stephen's been convicted of murder, he's in jail. Why should somebody want to kill me? It's not a Bruce Willis film. <laughs> no. <laughs> It was quite scary at times. It made me more determined to think, well, somebody doesn't want me to investigate this case. There's something more to it. Pressure was coming from the police as well to try and drop the thing. You know, think of your family, think of your colleagues, and also this sort of thing. How did your family, how did Kath, well, I, I mean, how much did they know, I suppose? Well, I told them as much as I need, they needed to know. I didn't want to tell them the whole rig and roll but you know I said look if you don't want me to do it if you know I'm quite happy I, I will drop it and, and what have you and, and Kath was quite adamant no if you believe that you know Stephen's innocent and there's a chance he didn't do it etc you know and she was sort of questioning herself well why are these people threatening then if Stephen's done it you know she couldn't understand it I said well neither can I you know so she said well keep it on but try and be very protective of the kids and and so, you know, I, I persevered. Suddenly it seems like a you know, story worth killing for. Someone's yeah. prepared to do yeah. that. Yeah, if, if somebody bumped me off, that would probably be the end of, of the investigation. It's 1995. The campaign to free Stephen Downing is starting to take its toll on Don Hale. It's affecting his health, his work and his family. But despite everything, he's determined to pursue Stephen's cause. The problem was, Don told me, they were entering uncharted territory. I mean, the interesting thing for me was uh, I was approached with a, with a potential uh, miscarriage of justice on my patch, if you like, on my watch in, in Bakewell. I never dealt with anything like this before in terms of somebody being innocent of, of particularly a murder. I never really investigated anything as such, but this was something different. But at the time, it was very difficult to take a miscarriage case forward because there was no real procedure to do so. As far as the authorities were concerned, and possibly even today, in, in many cases, they think if somebody's been duly arrested, um, charged and convicted, uh, found guilty by a jury, then that's it, justice has been done. Now my problem was, after looking initially at the evidence, to think, okay, well, where do we go from here? If you think, I've got a case for presenting that somebody's innocent. Where do you go? In other words, the law in England and Wales at this time was considered infallible. Miscarriages of justice simply couldn't exist. Therefore, there was no way of dealing with them. Which meant there was no way of challenging them. Which meant there was no way of challenging Stephen's conviction. And you sort of say, well, so when's he going to come out at this stage? And the, you know, you rustle the papers and stuff like this. And uh, um, well, he's got a review down. A um, oh, it's well in the future that. Oh, um, I'm not really sure. You know, it's it'd probably be about seventy, I think, when it's you know. And this is you're talking about a man of what in his thirties, forties, or late thirties, I think he was then. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous.
Don decides to get political. I had to badger, you know, the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister. I had to write to these people directly, get my local MP involved and write to people. You know, I was writing to Maggie Thatcher and, and different ones to, to, to say about this. And, I mean, it took a lot of time and effort. I'm Matthew Paris, a Times columnist. Shortly after Stephen Downing's appeal had failed, I became the Member of Parliament for West Derbyshire. So can you uh, take us back to that moment when they came into your surgery and describe what happened? It was, I think, the summer of 1979. I had only for a few months been a Member of Parliament. I was 29 years old. I had no experience at all of politics and I was holding I think my first surgery MP surgery in the town hall in Bakewell and my agent said to me I've got uh, Stephen Downing's parents to see you and I knew a little bit already about the case in they came with, with an old suitcase and pulled out all Stephen's blood-stained clothing from the day on which uh, he had encountered the body. Well, of course, I'm not a forensic scientist and, and had no way, really, of looking at the pattern of the stains on the clothing or knowing anything at all about it. But I agreed to write to the Home Secretary. And from the story they told me, I, I did feel that the, the way in which he had been arrested and detained and had confessed was a bit irregular. Unfortunately, the Home Secretary replied to me, he was William Whitelaw, that unless there was new evidence in the case, and in this case there was no new evidence, then according to the law as it then was, the case could not be reopened, the appeal having been turned down. Patrick McLaughlin, Member of Parliament for Derbyshire Dales. Where, where, are, we, where are we today? All right. Well, you've got a magnificent view of uh, the City of London on the corner of uh, Portcullis House. And the other thing that's interesting about Portcullis House is the stone came from Birchover Quarry. No, no, in Derbyshire. In Derbyshire. I didn't know that. No. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a lot, a lot of connections. It's funny, isn't it? It's uh... mm. anyway. So. Can you tell me um, what your connection to Bakewell is? No. Well, I'm the Member of Parliament for, uh, as it was in those days, West Derbyshire. It's now called Derbyshire Dales. Uh, when Mr Downing's father came to see me at the surgery, along with his mother, um, to make the representations to me about uh, Stephen. I think they'd had attempts uh, before that and sort of uh, 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 drawn a blank and sort of left it. But... Um, uh, I do remember them coming to see me. and I've spoken to my uh, predecessor, and he remembers them going to see him at the time. At the, and, uh, Matthew Paris. Matthew Paris. By 1995, Don had compiled a dossier evidence which he was convinced cast real doubt on the safety of Stephen's conviction. He persuaded McLaughlin to lend his support to the Downing's campaign. You know, I remember them sort of... I went up to see them at their house in Moor Hall, which was just around the corner from where Wendy's body was found when she was uh, murdered. Um, and, um, you know, it was still, obviously, they were doing all they could to get Stephen released. Um, and did they were they carrying around a box of clothes at the time? But they, they weren't carrying around a box of clothes, but they did show me those clothes. Uh, I, I don't think they brought the clothes to me when they came to see me at the surgery in, in Bakewell. I think they subsequently showed me those when I went to see them up at their house in, in Moorhall. Don used his contacts in the media to take this new evidence and the campaign to a national and even international audience. This is from February 95. Um, this is Don's written this. Derbyshire police are likely to use scientific DNA testing methods to help solve a 
22-year-old murder mystery which could prove the innocence of a former Boatwell teenager sentenced for the crime in 1973. Stephen Downing was ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure at Nottingham Crown Court in February 1974 for the murder of the typist Mrs Wendy Sewell who was brutally attacked with a pickaxe handle in Bakewell Cemetery. Evidence submitted to Home Secretary Michael Howard last week by West Derbyshire MP Patrick McLaughlin on behalf of his family has now thrown considerable doubt on his conviction. In addition, an anonymous letter containing a host of confidential information known only to a handful of people has also been received and indicates that another person or persons had met with the woman after Downing had left the cemetery. It supports many of the claims made by him at the time, which clearly identifies three other suspects. It has also been confirmed that Downing's fingerprints did not appear on the blood-stained shaft of the pickaxe handle and that there is no obvious connection with the fingernail scrapings of Mrs Sewell. It would seem that this information was not made available to the defence at his trial. The police are now considering using their modern DNA techniques to compare information on file from 1973 against these new suspects. A further letter received this week and handed to the police gives additional information about known associates of the murdered woman and details of regular meetings with one of the suspects close to the murder scene. I, I took it up with the Home Office. Um, we then referred on to the uh, Criminal Review Cases body, which was a new body which had been set up, um, and um, getting them to uh, look and investigate it. And I did raise it uh, several times on the floor of the House of Commons as well, in various uh, oh. exchanges with... Um, uh, I think there was one exchange with the, Prime Minister, uh, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, but he would simply say that it was a matter for the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Was that the Prime Minister's questions? Because I know it was raised in Prime Minister's questions with Blair. Yes, yes, it, it, it was. Uh, I raised it in Prime Minister's questions and I raised it with the Leader of the House on several occasions as well um, about sort of the need for to get this moved on a bit. Don was convinced that the case was going really well of course, I was visiting places like C3 in London, the Home Office. I was yeah. talking with the MP, Patrick McLaughlin, and I was thinking, this is, I wouldn't say it's easy, but, you know, if I can put a package together, a submission package together, yeah. give this to the police and give this to the Home Office, it's only a matter of maybe a few months or, uh, or what before he's, he's, he's out. You know, f fairly simple. Uh, of course, the law doesn't work like that. C3 was the criminal case unit of the British government's Home Office. Don told me that it was an antiquated joke, not fit for purpose. And you can read his lengthy thoughts on this organisation and its many failings in his book. In order to get Stephen his day in court and to argue against his conviction for the murder of Wendy Saul, Don first had to submit his evidence and his arguments to C3. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Don argued that there were problems with Stephen's confession the confession that formed the main plank of the prosecution's evidence. Problems with the way this confession had been extracted from him and how Stephen was treated by the police, the lack of parents or legal representation, and problems with the forensics. Crucially, Don identified other potential witnesses and suspects who he believed might have had motive and means to want to hurt Wendy. The existence of these Tarantino-esque men, Mr. Red, Blue, Orange, etc., cast real doubt over whether Stephen was the only one who could have had the opportunity to commit this brutal crime. Dom didn't need to convict another person, he just needed to establish reasonable doubt. What I was hoping for was that the C3 would recommend this to go to an appeal, mm. because I'd probably seen him half a dozen times at least, I'd spoken to him on the phone maybe a dozen times. I thought, you know, it was a, it was a strong case, strong argument here really. And I got a letter then out of the blue and followed by, I think, a telephone call to say, well, thanks very much, but um, we're packing up. C3s will no longer exist from a couple of months' time. Uh, your case will now be referred to the CCRC and it's up to them whether they pick up and go with it. So um, literally back to square one? Yeah, yeah. So let's just come back to the CRCC. For people who don't know, can you tell me what that is and, and how and why it was set up? It came about as a result of some of the miscarriages of justice which had been taken, um, been brought to sort of prominence before, before that. Uh, I, I think it originally came out of uh, the Birmingham um, pub bombing uh, trial. 
uh, when a royal commission said that a body like this should be uh, should be set up and was um, set up uh, and then followed through. Be before that, it had sort of been a branch of the Home Office, and it would be the Home Office that would decide whether a case should be referred back or not. Uh, and then the, the Criminal Cases Review Commission was brought as a, as a separate body to uh, review uh, cases and to review evidence. Right, because before that, there, was, there wasn't a kind of a, a structure, was there, for the idea of no, miscarriage? It was, it was something which was sort of part of the empire of the Home Office uh, and, you know, would be made a recommendation to the then Home Secretary. This was a way of trying to sort of continue with the sort of the separation, really, of justice away from politicians. I suppose it separates an individual case from an attack of the rule of law. Well, it, 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 it enables a professional body that's accountable um, to, uh, to, to ensure that these things are properly looked at in, a, uh, in an independent way with no sort of allegations that the Home Secretaries are just trying not to deal with issues. And it was one of the very first cases, I think it was something like 90, case 97 or something like that that was came up. Uh, it should have been case number one, really, <laughs> because it was we were ahead of the game with everybody else. Um, but anyway, it was given to them. I went down, I had about an hour's interview with the officer in charge, who then told me uh, the, a commissioner had been appointed, uh, Barry Capon, you know. And a commissioner's responsibility was to look after the case. Yeah, yeah. To, to, he was in charge of all, all the investigation. He would look at the, what you've submitted, go through everything. If there was a need to investigate, he would send out, um, you know, police officers to carry out further uh, inquiries, statements, or whatever. They would look at all sorts of evidence. Um, you know, uh, don't call us, we'll call you type thing. And we, we did go over an awful lot of ground, but certain things where he says it was was not part of his remit. He would then bombard you with questions and demanding evidence to to ask that it was part of his mm. remit in terms of other people being responsible, and it put me in the position of almost playing a detective, you know, as as a as a DI on the case, um, which was never my intention. I was really looking in terms of looking at uh, in this case with Stephen Downing to say here is, in my opinion, sufficient evidence to cast doubt on the conviction. And not, you can can you pick up the ball as yeah, the police and investigate? Right. Yeah, not necessarily to, to say, right, you can prove that Joe Bloggs did it or somebody else was responsible for it. But there were a lot of overlaps to say that, um, you know, not only, as I believe, uh, uh, Stephen didn't do it, but uh, he's got an alibi at the time of, of, of the actual time of the murder. I think you've got the time of the murder wrong. Uh, I think she was still alive at that time that you say she was she'd been attacked and was was badly injured, and and so I'd got other witness statements which contradicted the original police evidence. Stephen was also what is termed an idom, in denial of murder. This is a complex catch twenty two legal term which effectively means that unless a convict admits guilt and takes responsibility for a crime, they can't be considered for parole. If you like Stephen, continue to claim to be innocent and claim and claim and claim again, you're in denial. And you'll remain in prison and your case won't be reviewed until you admit that you did it. It's a fair cop. Or not. One of the reasons why he was being kept in prison was because he wouldn't admit to his guilt. So actually the very fact that he was protesting his innocence and continuing to possess his innocence meant that he was uh, sort of kept in jail. Stephen would have been released before if he'd admitted his guilt. At this point, Stephen had been in prison for over 20 years. And if he hadn't been in denial, he could have been free after 10. In 1984. 1984, the year that saw the start of the miners' strike, which devastated so much of the industry in Derbyshire and beyond. It was the year that controversial runner Zola Budd crashed out of the Olympics in bare feet. And perhaps most relevantly for Stephen, it was the year Sir Alec Jeffries announced the discovery of DNA fingerprinting. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A brutal murder. A wrongful conviction. A 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. office and the police have both admitted that they are carefully sifting through new evidence. The Homes Office has said Downing's case will be considered for the Parole Board review in March. Presently, Downing has served 22 years in jail for a crime he has always claimed he did not commit and from his cell at Dorchester Prison praised the investigative campaign launched by the Matlock Mercury and supported this week by both Central Television and the Daily Star. I am innocent, he told the Mercury. I always said the truth will come out one day but can't really understand why it has taken 22 years for the police to look at some obvious clues to find the real Murderer. Following on from the first story in the Mercury, Stephen writes again in February. Um, it really is amazing the power the press has on people. My case officer spoke to me today. He said he'd seen the video five times <laughs> and it was of the view that I'm innocent. It's nice to know that you've got some staff who believe it even if it's taken some time to get there. I would never have thought for a minute that one of the four suspects would have come forward to tender evidence, perhaps even against his own friends. I find it equally hard to believe that the police have allowed vital evidence to remain in a vault for almost 22 years. It seems that they were just desperate to secure a conviction, and a fast one, with little regard to who showed her the blame. It's often been said that the truth will always prevail, and it now looks as if I'm on that path. And then he goes on about the stuff we put in the Daily Star with a uh, contact of mine. He, he says, once until the Daily Star took up my plight in a bid to establish my I began to have reservations about the kind of reception I would get from fellow inmates. Um, any fears I had can certainly be laid to rest. This has become big news and a buzz of excitement ripples through the, the Wingate mail call, with a number of eager lads jostling to the next in line to read the following instalment in what has become Dorchester Prison's very own soap opera. <laughs> and again it's, it shows how it's changed by having publicity because even the staff here are now wishing me well in the fight to have the Home, Exos Home Secretary exercise a royal prerogative of mercy now that was a, a, a rule that was in at the time so what was that? where they could say that he's, he's actually served over his time not saying he's innocent yeah. but he's served over his time he's over his tariff um, 
and that they they consider him um, safe to be released. So, but the Queen would have had to uh, endorse that. It would have had to gone to her because he was serving, he was being detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. So it would have the Queen would have had to step in and say, well, I think he has served long enough. Um, I think he should be considered for release. So that was again uh, where it was done. And this Michael Howard was was involved then as the Home Secretary. Um, it says the wealth of evidence contained in the dossier would appear to offer the Home Secretary little choice in what action he can take. Whether or not Mr. Howard will view this as a case of Hobson choice remains to be seen. So he he's a bit naive in a sense, thinking, well, because we've got a big splash in the newspapers and the, the Daily Star and other nationals are beginning to sort of take a shine to this, um, and I put the submission in that it's going to be a piece of cake. So you get this sort of misconception that um, from one minute you're down in the dumps, nobody's going to bother, nobody cares about me type thing, you're pretty down and depressed, to now thinking, well, actually, I may be mistaken, we've got now some publicity in the papers and the national newspapers, we've got the the, um, the uh, submission gone in, we've got a reaction now back from them, which you wouldn't have got maybe six months before. If I'd contacted him, or if Stephen's father had contacted him six months before, you wouldn't have got that response anyway, you see. And so he's right, in a sense, the power of the press was important to to spark this off, and so it got everybody talking about it, not just in the community, but you know, at the Home Office and various other people. And I was called the fly in the ointment, you see, you know. Um, the police called me the madman of Macklock for trying to, to battle through on this thing. Don spotted the possibilities of fake news way back before it was even a thing. Stephen talks about, I would have never thought for one minute that one of the four suspects would have come forward to tender evidence. Mm. Um, the suspect, uh, this, this was uh, Sid Osnum, who was mentioned in my original documents and whatever, and his statements to me, and I believe he spoke to the police, you know, at one stage, he was identified by probably eight or nine different witnesses as being on, on or near the murder scene at the time of, of the murder. Parked in his van at the back of the cemetery. And he, he forever denied it to me. I, I must have interviewed him several times. And it was always the same thing. I was miles away that day. You know, He couldn't remember anything about it. And yet it was an impo- such an important day he couldn't remember the day, but he could remember that he was miles away. So it was a Got an odd sort of anomaly. Mm. If you can't remember, if you can't remember the day, how how do you know you, you you weren't there or you you were miles away? And so it was always no no no. I was, I was definitely miles away, but he couldn't remember the actual day or, or anything about it. But when you put things to him, he still denied it. It was only after I'd I'd gone public with my story in the Mercury and my colleague at the Daily Star for, for this, and he put a description of four people A, B, C, and D of people that were interesting in terms of the initial findings. Oh, persons of interest. Persons, persons of interest, of, yeah. yeah. And we didn't obviously name them, we just said suspect A, B, C and D and things like that. And he recognised himself as one of these suspects. Sid Ilsnum did. Yeah, yeah. Because we were saying that the advance now of forensic science, DNA, could, could now identify him because we were saying that um, there was a third blood sample found on, on the murder weapon as hairs and fibres, etc, etc, which weren't Downing's and they weren't the victim. So who were they? As soon as he saw this one, he, he phoned up saying, you know, I think that's me that's, that's in, the, in the Daily Star, you know. He then admitted to me, yes, that was me. And that's why I'm, I'm phoning, because I'm worried I, I could get um, roped into this murder, you see. But it wasn't me, I didn't do it, and all this sort of stuff. And you've got, you've got a recording of that. Yeah, I've got, well, I've got some of it. I, th- some I, of it. I did the second record, I right. think, yeah. I didn't yeah, we, record well, the we first one. We can't play that because it was, it was just... It was rec- recorded for your own personal use, so it's... Yeah, uh, yeah. But the press publicity that, that, that you, you put on this... Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you... Because I know that, I mean, DNA started... Well, DNA analysis became possible in the mid-'80s. Yeah. Um, hmm. But did you actually have any DNA or were you just trying to flush him out by, by using well, the magic words DNA? Well, no, I mean... We, didn't, it doesn't actually say we have the DNA, does it? No, we, I mean, I didn't personally have any DNA, but I, I, what I'd identified from uh, my informants, police informants and things, was that uh, a description of the murder weapon, the pickaxe handle, quite clearly said that it had... Um, they'd identified a third blood sample, uh, hairs and fibres, and I think there's a, I think there's a palm print on the murder weapon 
Now, they didn't belong to, to Stephen Downing, so they weren't introduced as evidence, you see, because there was no connection to him. Unlike with a, with a lot of uh, aspects of the forensics, and when I was looking through them, and indeed some of the submission, it's not so much about proving exactly someone else didn't do it or that Stephen definitely didn't, but it's about doubt. And, and oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And I mean, saying that, actually, if there was someone else here, or, or there possibly was here, it isn't the clear-cut conviction no. that the jury was or the evidence that they were presented with and that that led directly to Stephen and only to well, Stephen. Well there was there were so many boxes that came up um that were if it really flagged up as red boxes to me because the massive question marks over them but like I say with this one with potential forensic and stuff where nothing had been nothing been qualified nothing been really followed through properly because it didn't link to Downing but it may have linked to somebody else and I mean the whole of the scene of crime was a complete mishmash. And because the crime scene was such a mess, the new magic bullet forensic technique would have been no use anyway. In 1973, they had no concept of the contamination issues that, that DNA was going to bring. Forensic expert John Wright, ex-Met police and currently lecturer at Dollarby University. When I first started work, we started. We worked in open laboratories. Although we worked in separate areas, the laboratory was actually open. The air, you know, th there were air channels between laboratories. Now you work in sealed wow. laboratories because you are trying to ensure that nothing from a suspect can transfer to a victim's clothing accidentally or anything else. Contamination is a major issue, and we have to look at what we call the chain of custody. So we look at everything has to be signed for, documented where it's been, what's happened to it. Uh, and also we have to avoid contamination. So everything's examined in different areas, different benches, different sets of uh, equipment and everything else. Because that seems something that, you know, reading reports of the initial attack, that A, people were trying to, you know, look after Wendy, but also that people trying to mark the crime scene didn't have any kind of knowledge of keeping things separate and cross-contamination, even to the point where clothes and weapons were put in the same bag to, to be taken away. Well, that's... If a police officer had had half a day's forensic training, they'd have been lucky. Mm -hmm. So they may not have been forensically aware. They may have thought they were doing the right thing and gathering it up and putting it together, whereas now, hopefully, they'd, they'd be aware of it and they keep stuff separate. This is why cold cases are so difficult, because we might have these lovely new techniques, but if the evidence isn't stored correctly, then we can't use it. So in terms of forensic science, can you tell me the kind of changes in forensic science from the kind of early 70s to, to now? I mean, the case we're looking at happened in 1973. Forensic science is an ever-changing science. Predominantly, I suppose, it's sort of biology and biochemistry based, but it takes science from all over the place. And if a good technique becomes available, then it gets quite often adopted into forensic science. The, the main change, perhaps, from, from that time is that in 1973 we were doing what's called blood grouping, where we could tell whether somebody was a, an A, an O, but we couldn't actually differentiate blood samples from one person to another. We could, we could narrow them down to a group, but we couldn't actually get the, the blood samples to one person. Fingerprints have been in existence since the 1900s uh, and were very well-established evidence. When did DNA come in? It was actually developed, the technique was developed initially for immigration type cases, just looking for parentage because it's really good, that's what it's really good at. You can, if you have a full DNA profile of uh, mother, father and child, you can actually see where, where that child has got their um, inherited genes from because you inherit half your DNA from your mum, half from your dad. One result of the media attention was the emergence of new witnesses and new evidence. I think it was in response to the, the TV documentary mm. that didn't someone from Derby Museum ring up and go, we've got the murder weapon? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was a strange thing. I mean, it's all the animosity and uh, uh, denials from Derbyshire police about, you know, we've, everything's been burnt, lost and destroyed. What can we do because we've got nothing to go on now and all this sort so of you, business. you kept going to them, can I see this? Yeah, can yeah, I see this yeah. evidence? Can I see this? And we they go, no. Yeah. It's you know, been we would we we would consider helping you, but we've got nothing, and you know where do we go from here? It's all down to you, basically. But he's as guilty as hell, and you know all the evidence yeah, has been burnt, lost, and destroyed. Yeah. So suddenly, um, you know, I did my own publicity and stuff like this, and this this guy came up with real Derbyshire accent, you know, from Derby Museum, saying he's an assistant curator at the Derby Police Museum. I gather you're looking for the murder weapon, and I said, yeah. They, they, you mean the pickaxe handle? He said, yeah. 
Um, I said, well, it's, all, it's been burnt, lost and destroyed. That's probably been burnt. He hasn't, mate. He says it's here. Um, it's our prime exhibit. It's on display in the museum and it's got a, a brass thing with it. You know, one of Derbyshire Police's quickest convictions type thing. You know, gives the date and when they saw murder, you know, September yeah. 73 and all the rest. Yeah. He said, do you want to come around and pick it up? Right, we're in the Ruddle Hotel in the centre of uh, the town at Market Town of Bakewell in North Derbyshire. My name's David G. Um, I was a member of the Derbyshire Police for um, just over 30 years. We were lucky that we'd still got the murder weapon and the, um, the pickaxe handle, effectively. Wasn't that found in the museum? Yeah, it, it, was, <laughs> it was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was in the museum. We found it. No, I can say no more than that. We found it in our search, extensive search. Uh, we found it. The murder weapon was a pickaxe stave. So the pickaxe stave was... Uh, the handle. Sorry, the pickaxe handle. Yeah. Yes, I beg your pardon. Very. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and and I'm, using my, I'm using my hands to show <laughs> it. And it's not, it's not, it doesn't really work on radio, does it? Or on audio. Um, so my name is Tony Blockley. When I retired, I was the chief superintendent or the head of crime. So I had responsibility for all crime in and around Derbyshire. So yeah, so it was a, so it was a pickaxe handle uh, without the head on it. It was kept in what they called the consecrated chapel, which was a workman's. It, it had been deconsecrated, so it wasn't. It was no longer a religious aspect, but it was in the graveyard. Stephen said at a point in time, yes, he had been using that during the day because they used it for all sorts of different things but at that time he hadn't been and there was uh, it, it was thought to be lost uh, and in actual fact it wasn't lost it was found and it was found in a museum at that time we had a museum a police museum and it was within the police museum and in Derby yes oh, yeah right. that's right because it's in the book the book isn't it this is rather, yes. rather extraordinary yes phone call about- yes yeah I know so we we, we, we actually recovered the, the stave at the handle um and, you know, forensically, uh, I mean, even today, uh, you know, if you were investigating it today and a person's, you know, if Stephen's DNA was on it, well, he's already said he's been picked it up. It's yeah. what they call a transferable item. So it, it doesn't have any evidential validity. You know, yes, it was that, but actually anybody could have used it. At the same time as he was courting UK press and broadcasting, Don and his legal team were also pursuing a case in the European courts a case against the UK government. It was an attempt to overturn the IDOM legislation as a breach of EU human rights laws. You know, the publicity was certainly helping uh, with all this. And what also helped as well is that the, um, the Midlands um, video won an, a national award, um, you know, because of the content mm. and whatever. And so the BBC agreed to, to re-show this on BBC Two and it was shown as it was uh, in the same form. And again, it attracted a, a massive amount of interest and publicity. But it also brought on board um, a lot of the uh, national and international press, really. And so it all helped to generate publicity. And again, at the same time, we were coming to conclusions on the European mm. part. So, you know, we were winning cases against the government. And the strange thing was then I started to get a awful lot of interest from countries that absolutely hated Britain um, because I was seen as a, a crusader against the British government. I was taking on the British government on two or three fronts here um, and calling them out, you see. But the resurgence of interest in the murder would take its toll in the small town of Bakewell. And Wendy, or rather Wendy's memory, took the brunt of it. Was she really considered nothing more than collateral damage? I do want to talk about the Bakewell Tart mm. issue. Which well, paper the, was that? The, the Mail Group, really. Mail, right. So Daily when, Mail, when, when Mail the Sunday. Nationals got hold of it and... The Mail and Sunday Daily Mail, initially, and others picked it up later on to run with the same, the same tag, but they called the victim the Bakewell Tart and they painted a... When you saw... Yeah, they painted the victim pretty awful at times. Yeah, um, the headlines are shocking, yeah, aren't they? the Mail sort of ran with this and seemed to love playing on this. Unfortunately, the headline, the Bakewell Tart... It's too good a headline for, for journalists to miss. And it was, it was also unkind on, 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 on Wendy her, herself. Times columnist Matthew Paris. But what grabs the press grabs the press. And it did at least keep the story, if not lively, still kind of alive. And, and that will have helped Don 
in a way in 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 his in his efforts to to get the whole thing reopened. They say bad news travels, and this headline certainly did. Don received this letter from Wendy's cousin in Canada. Dear Mr Hill, Wendy Sewell was my cousin. I did not know of your campaign over so many years. I very much admire your tenacity. I also have tremendous admiration for Stephen's mother, father and sister for the continued faith they showed in their son and brother. No one can take away the hurt and pain that Stephen and his family have suffered. No amount of compensation will change that no words from a Prime Minister or even a Queen will erase the horrors Stephen has gone through or give him back his life. I expect that knowing people like you are supporting him for so many years and perhaps hopefully seeing the real culprits brought to justice will provide some measure of comfort. At the time of Wendy's death, I just accepted what we were told, not knowing the background to the case. I was fortunate to have had a couple of pints with Wendy not long before she was killed. I know we would have continued to be good friends had she lived. God, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It really is heartbreaking. Wendy has no brothers or sisters to defend her. It really saddened and angered me to read through the articles and find no words of sympathy, solace or remembrance for another victim of this tragedy, the main one, Wendy Sewell, who was beaten to death. The memory I have of Wendy Sewell is of a young, fun-loving cousin. She was my mum's brother's daughter and her parents loved her and were proud of her, just the same as Stephen's parents. My anger is raised when I read The Bakewell Tart, Numerous Affairs and Blackmail, even if she was the person Bakewell wishes to betray her as, she did not deserve to be beaten to death. To lie waiting for an ambulance for 40 minutes and to have those responsible free for all this time. She could have been saved. My anger is directed at those who have known for so many years who was responsible and said nothing. How can they sleep peacefully? I am sure that at the time of the murder there were several of Bakewell's good citizens saying, Oh God, she got what she deserved. No, she did not. No one deserves to be beaten to death or to be called a Bakewell tart, etc. Come on, Bakewell, where is your North Country kindness and generosity? Maybe if some of the brave men of Bakewell had kept their belts done up, this tragedy would never have happened. Yours sincerely, Malcolm Burnham. With new evidence and new interest, Don feels that momentum in the case is definitely building. So I phoned up um, John Atkins, uh, his lawyer, and he couldn't believe it. And John was saying, well, what do we actually need to move on? I said, well, we've got to get a forensic expert, we've got to get a photographer, we've got to get a police expert, etc., etc." And we, we applied and, and successfully got legal aid funding, £13,000 or whatever it was for these. So we, we brought these experts on board. The police went absolutely ballistic because these were police experts that they use themselves. So you can't use them, and you can't use them. You know, you're using them as police experts. They're independent people. We'll use who the hell we want, you know, get lost. Um, and so we used these, and they came out and absolutely crucified everything the police had, had done on the case. And they got the, the murder weapon now, which we had forensically tested, and they found the, or got the original documents from, that didn't exist, you know. Uh, now you had all the bits in, of yeah. that jigsaw puzzle in the playground. That's it. yeah. The difference between a Bakewell pudding and a Bakewell tart, the Bakewell tart is short crust pastry, jam, and a layer of almond sponge, which most people know. You can buy them anywhere in the country. Can you tell me who you are and where we are? <laughs> My name's Moira Black, and I work in Bloomers at Bakewell, one of the pudding shops. The Bakewell pudding you can only buy in Bakewell, and it's puff pastry with a layer of jam, and the topping is butter, sugar, eggs, and ground almonds. It's more of a dessert that you'd serve warm with cream or ice cream, whatever takes your fancy. But how it came into being, instead of putting flour into the pudding, the cook at the Rutland put ground almonds. And the owner liked it so much, he called it the pudding. 
was it a mistake? Was it a, it's a it was a, a happy accident? <laughs> but it is only made in Bakewell. Ah. Are you, are you, so are you from Bakewell originally? No, I'm from Sheffield originally. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Ah. Okay, let me ask you something totally off the wall then. I am investigating, I'm making a series, a series of programmes right. about the case about Wendy Saul being murdered. Oh, right, yeah. Um, do you remember that? Or do you remember the reinvestigation? I remember it all, yeah. 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 Well, I remember when it happened, and I remember the um, editor of the Mercury, Don Hale, investigating the case. It took him, I think, seven or eight years, but, and apparently there's another book coming out yes. by Don Hale which I've got on pre-order. Have you? I don't believe it was Stephen Downing. And there's lots of rumours, which I can't say whether they're right or wrong. But I don't, I don't think... I think there was a lot of cover-ups. I'm convinced there was a lot of cover-ups. But, you know, Stephen Downing still gets blamed for it in Bakewell. Really? The town without pity. I think it's very true. I, very, I think it's very true about the people in Bakewell, you see. Yeah. So, but they, they still believe it was him. So you remember when it happened, the attack yeah. happened? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's horrific. And you think about this as such a picture pop I know, tone, you don't believe anything like this can happen. No, but, no. Uh, as I said, there's lots of rumours go around. I personally don't believe it was Stephen. What, so. what are the rumours? Well, I'm not, no, I'm not prepared to say. <laughs> I'm not prepared to say what the rumours are. Can you remember when he came back in the mid-90s? He came for a visit from prison. I don't remember that, him coming for the day. I don't remember. But the town welcomed him then. But, you know, it's a very bad time. A, 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 a terrible murder. I mean, awful. Awful thing to have happened. I think it's very unfair, I mean, the, the way she was talked about as well. I mean, we none of us know what she was really like, so I think it was terrible the way she was talked about, yeah. you know. The other side effect of the campaign protesting Stephen's innocence was the accusations of guilt flying around Bakewell. If Stephen Downing hadn't killed Wendy Saul, somebody else had, somebody else that's still out there. Despite their solid alibis, accusations as usual, were first pointed at those closest to the victim, Wendy's husband David, her former boyfriend John Marshall and her alleged lover, Mr Red. When Stephen was taken in for questioning from about sort of half past one, two o'clock on the, on the day of the attack, he was taken in for questioning then. Uh, within hours, um, David saw the husband was also taken in for questioning as a suspect and was told he was a potential suspect as was um, the alleged boyfriend at the time, uh, Mr. Red. He was also... So you got three people in the cells at the same time all being questioned over the attack. You know, so you got the, the husband, the, a boyfriend, and Stephen as the potential suspects. Now, Stephen wasn't told he was a suspect where the other two were. Now, you know, that is strange in itself, really. If there's a robbery normally or... Some major incident, say it's a big burglary, whatever. Then the police will bring in the usual suspects. They will line up three or four people that have been in trouble before, just come out of prison or whatever. Um, and so it was the police then. You know, it's not me saying that. This. this is this is fact that these people were brought in. And of course, David Sewell was not happy about the fact he was brought in for questioning and was a potential suspect. And but, the, but but you're saying I, I don't think um, we've talked about this. Is that the police already had Stephen in their sights? Well, only Charlesworth was was the local. Beat Bobby, uh, you know, a beefy sort of guy. He was the font of all knowledge from as far as the, you know the local Bobbies were concerned. He thought he was God's gift in, as a policeman, um, and he would go around and give kids a clip round the ear sort of thing to I keep, keep them like out a of bit trouble. Of a bully. Yeah, he was. He was. He was a mini thug type bully, mm. who who thought he could do what he wanted. He got a free range. He ran that that area, and he was the man that you you saw really when he went in the police station. Or he was a man that you know was put in front of you um, if you've made any complaint or you got anything to argue with, and we found with this case in particular, his name cropped up so many many times that um, once I got involved with the investigation, so many people said that they they've been down to the police station and they've seen Ernie, and he said you're basically wasting your time. He's already admitted it. We've got the man that's done it. That's it, and he was the man that was seemed to be continually saying that. Um, making false allegations about Stephen. Charlesworth, yeah. Yeah. 
you know, oh yeah, I've been watching him for years. He he he'd been up to different things. Uh, there was an assault on a woman, you know, a few years before when I think he was probably about fourteen or something like that. Um, you know, there was all sorts of things that didn't stand up really, but it was the impression he was given to fellow officers and the impression given to Joe Public that Stephen had got. Um, was was a bit of an odd one, an oddball, and a bit, uh, you know, potentially a pervert. But why were these accusations being made about Stephen, and why did so many townspeople seem prepared to accept that he was capable of a brutal attack on a woman, as if it wasn't a surprise? Why was this pervert label being flung around? Some were saying that the attack on Wendy was an accident waiting to happen. Hardly an accident. But could people, should people, have seen it coming? Could it have been prevented? And if so, would Wendy still be alive? If he is eventually released with the pardon, Danny will be the longest serving wrongly convicted prisoner in history and could eventually receive over £1 million in compensation. Who is the real Stephen Downing? And what is the reality of growing up inside the prison system? Join us to hear Stephen Downing in his own words in episode 7 of Murder in the Graveyard. And you can delve deeper into the podcast by visiting our website, reporterpodcast.com. And please feel free to rate and review the series. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont, is mixed by Dave Dodd, the music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson, the executive producer is Matt Hall. A reporter, Murder in the Graveyard, is a Wireless Studios production. William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.